Hey, folks, if indeed you are, folks, uh, Layman Pascal here on Love the System, a subtentacle of the Integral Stage podcast devoted to policies, procedures, protocols, and principles that determine whether the systems in which we are embedded are A, flourishing towards sacred collective sapience that makes us smarter than we are, or B, floundering into dehumanizing flatland that makes us collectively dumb and soulless. And you couldn't uh, find a more fitting topic, I think, than one that haunts the intersection of technology, indigeneity, ecology, culture, and legal systems. So I'm thrilled to be joined by Trevor and Lee, who went to high school just down the road from me, to talk about indigenous approaches to information ecology and the decolonization of the internets. Hi, guys. Yeah, hey. Hey, that was an (laughs) awesome introduction. (laughs) Spot on. Good, good. I was thinking, since a lot of this discussion involves an orientation that puts place and ancestry at the heart of how we do sense-making and distribution of control around emergent technologies, then maybe a good way to start would be for you guys to say where and who you're from, to speak to our embedded sourcing or something like that. (laughs) How about you go first, Trevor? Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, my name is. Yeah, well, thanks for having us. First of all, um, my name is Trevor Jang. I'm a mixed ancestry person. On my mother's side, I come from the Wet'suwet'en Nation, uh, which is an indigenous nation in northwestern British Columbia. Um, within that, I come from, from the Laxiliu or the Small Frog Clan, and then on my my father's side, I'm uh, Chinese, uh, French Canadian, um, and I'm uh, mostly based uh, here on the unceded uh, Coast Salish territories, also known as Vancouver. And uh, I've I've worked with uh, my colleague and business partner Lee White for a number of years now, so I'll let him uh, introduce himself. Yeah, thanks uh, again. Thanks for having us, Lehman. Yeah, my name is Lee White. I live on the unceded territory of the Comox Nation and specifically the Pentlodge people. Uh, you know, I, I had the opportunity as uh, you know somebody of mixed, mostly European ancestry. To, to grow up next to a reserve close to where you spent some time layman on the Saanich Peninsula. Um, and uh, I, I was, I'd say, gifted with the opportunity to understand what's often known as the land question um, and, and to bridge even, you know, in early years in school, um, the alternative perspectives and philosophies of indigenous cultures, Coast Salish specifically, where I grew up, Halkomenum language group. And uh, yeah, there's, I think, some amazing opportunities for us to look to traditional knowledge in terms of how to build ethical frameworks for emerging technologies. So I'm pretty stoked to be here and have this chat. Nice. Uh, well, if anybody listening doesn't know, I'm from Sointula on Malcolm Island on the BC coast. Uh, my mother's line's been on that coast for five generations. My dad worked on a Kwakutl seine boat when I was a kid. So I feel close to the land and some of the indigenous currents in the area. Now I'm in Ontario in Anishinaabe territory, which is also where my dad and his dad and his dad lived. Uh, but all the same, I come from people who always left their place and moved on who made deep alliances with land, but who were ultimately more committed to their personal search and personal relationships. So my concerns about data sovereignty come from a kind of individualistic point of view. What is it that's different if you come at this problem from the position of being deeply intergenerationally and culturally embedded in the continuity of a particular ecosystem? 
What, what difference does that make to our framing? And and anybody can. This, Trevor, or? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll start it off. You know, I like so so you know the the right to data sovereignty, like any like any other right, when it comes to being an indigenous person, it's it's a it's a collective right. So indigenous so let's say you know let's look at the land question for first off before we get on to the data sovereignty so um indigenous right to to our traditional territory that's a that's a collective right so so i i have that right and responsibility to lack traditional territory as an individual person but i only have that because i'm part of a clan and because i'm part of a, a traditional nation right um, so it's 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 a collective um, responsibility to to preserve our territories uh, for future generations, and, and so when I when I look at that um, from the lens of of data sovereignty, it's uh, it's it's a bit of a mind bend to be perfectly honest with you. You know how do we um, take those principles of of being sort of one with and and being that sort of uh, that. Uh, interconnection with with that space that uh, that that we're from, and sort of put that into a digital lens and uh, apply that sort of same collective framework and collective way of, of looking at things onto something that's that's emerging and um, is using emerging technologies to to apply. So, um, it, I think the the, the short answer is uh, to your question. It's a it's a bit of a work in progress. But Lee, what I would interested on on your thoughts, particularly on some of our sort of uh, earlier ideations of what Chinook X was, and sort of our, our thinking around Indigenous uh, consensus protocols, and how that kind of got us going on this journey. Yeah, so I, I'd say the well, the origin story for Chinook X Technologies. Um, I was invited to a conference called Partech Participatory Technology in Vancouver in 2017, hosted by the Human Data Commons Foundation, uh, which really looks at um, the ethics of our data management at large. And uh, well, Trevor, you and I went out on commercial and had a chat, as we often do. Um, before that, you seeded an idea that, you know, in all honesty, I kind of blew off. <laughs> and then at the conference the next day, that idea emerged. I asked a question, which I thought was naive, uh, perhaps was, and it turned into this project around how the Indigenous sovereignty movement and the data sovereignty movement could find alignment. And for me, the notion of ethics in technology and ethical frameworks from my exposure to ceremony and indigenous cultures professionally personally is that there are these i'd say ancient governance protocols and and means of coming and convening and reaching consensus and one of the important attributes within that is that people need to come and bring their voice they need to bring their intelligence as their gifts and there's an understanding uh, as, as I perceive it culturally, that each of us is entrusted with these gifts by creator that we bring into this world. So in consensus, we need to bring those. And the protocols whereby we interact, if we create a framework to build consensus around showing up in right relationship, showing up you know, by suspending preconceived notions and allowing emergence to evolve through us in that moment, that that is an 
an excellent ethical framework to build technology from. Um, and again, that was that was a, like a little vision, uh, an insight. And we've, we're five years in um, doing fundamental research with UBC, the School of Information and Archival Science, um, on how we codify Indigenous protocols in this way as a computational expression. You know, I, I think the notion, again, Trevor spoke well to a collectivist culture with collectivist asset management, be it land, um, be it abundance. The, the collective came before the individual and um, prestige was built as I understand it by what you could contribute through ceremonies like a potlatch so if we received abundance and you know on our Quakefield sane boat um, you know how, how do we distribute that amongst the, the the community and make sure that everyone is thriving um, you know that was how the economies were managed, uh, which I think is a, an elegant way of us sort of being in community, in communion and stewarding the land in a sustainable way. Um, so if we can bring those values into our technologies um, and ask people to show up with their gifts, then I think we'll have a, a more robust and living sort of truthing system in this post-truth era. Yeah, I like the uh, the sense of its elegance. Uh, it also strikes me that there's a there's a pure pragmatic element to it as well. Like the uh, information spaces are dominated by corporate platforms and things like that, which are not individuals. You can't really be a strong individual player in these spaces. You need some kind of collective. And it also seems like if you look at it from the individual point of view, you don't get the the built-in ethics element. Like ethics is related to to ethos. You're you're ethical with people. You're not just ethical on your own. Uh, but you're five years in. You were saying, unless you want to address anything I just said. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that the for me one of the parsing points. You know, we talk about these in software development is. In our Eurocentric cultures, we've embraced this notion of selfish self-interest and that markets will be driven by our selfish self-interest. And as I understand indigenous economies, um, one, you know, we have a colleague, Caroline Hilton, um, runs the Indigenomics Institute, wrote a fantastic book called Indigenomics, looking at new channel um, economic systems, which are based on reciprocity. Uh, not so much selfish self-interest, but how we can tr contribute to the collective. Uh, and I find as, as, a, as a parent, as a father, as a family member, I find that a much more elegant and accurate expression of my responsibilities in family and community than my own selfish self-interest. And uh, so the notionally, as we shift to these the, these let's say indicators of reciprocity rather than um, indicators of personal advancement, then I believe we create more just data architecture that is looking for those relationships and maintaining those relationships rather than a competitive environment where people are, you know, practicing uh, one-upmanship, selfish self-interest. So. 
So how do you um, how do you codify reciprocity? Yeah, it's just um, putting me on the spot, um, which is great. What what we're working on is relational databases that are more like a neural network. And what we recognize is that truth is always becoming more, it's always evolving and it's becoming more nuanced and we're filling in those pieces. So I think it's a matter of creating the relationships between the nodes um, of intelligence, of data within that network so that we're not holding on to a fixed sort of row and column, um, absolutist fatland truth, we're allowing for truth to evolve and become more sophisticated over time. And I believe that's how consciousness works. I believe through my experience in indigenous ceremony, cultures, and teachings, that there's a really intimate understanding of that, that is a living whole system universe that we're part of participating in. So I hope that helped. Trevor, um, I'm, I'm, I'm eating up the airwaves here. What well, you you're doing so well. I don't know. I don't want to interrupt you, but no, what I will say is um, <laughs> I, I think we often, uh, um, especially in these types of circles, is, is we, we, we tend to romanticize uh, our indigenous cultures and, and governance systems. And for good reason, you know, we, we stewarded these territories sustainably for thousands of years before this current iteration of, of humanity. But our systems are, are damaged and broken um, by this current iteration of, of humanity, right? And what, so, so it's, it's very hard to answer the question. How do you, how do you, you know, how do you codify reciprocity? How do you codify indigenous values on a blockchain, for example, because those systems and those laws and those ways of being are so disrupted by, you know, this colonial world that we all are impacted by. Um, so I, a big mission of what we're trying to do at Chinook X is help to facilitate nation rebuilding um, and and using data sovereignty as one tool in the toolbox that a nation has of putting those pieces of its systems back together for the betterment of everyone, right? Um, so we sort of operate at this intersection of data sovereignty, reconciliation, as, as well as um, climate action and, and a just uh, energy transition. And, and Lee, we'll, we'll, we'll talk your ear off that for hours. So be careful if you ask him about that. But 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 really, it's about it's about, um, yeah, it's about nation rebuilding for me and, and putting the tools in the toolbox to bring an H bring a system that worked in, in you know, ancient times and make it applicable to today's challenges. Yeah, I was going to ask, um, you know, there's a kind of semi-standardized notion of what Indigenous data consists of. Um, how does that play into what you guys are doing? Because you guys are obviously talking about something I think that has broader implications than the way Indigenous data is normally defined. Yeah, I'll leave that to you, but Sure. Um, you know, there, there, there's, I would say, yes, it, it, uh, a basic answer is indigenous data is information 
impacting or about indigenous peoples really um so it could be it could be anything but it, you know i think there's the sort of the 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 context of your question is you know is are we talking about you know our our traditional knowledge for example you know that's that's one sort of it's one form of indigenous data is is our knowledge about our our traditional territories so all of our legends and all of our stories that come from our culture because we're an oral culture all of those stories that sort of tie us to place and from sort of a title and rights legal legal perspective prove our continuous occupation of our land since pre-contact so that's yeah it's, it's, so so that that that's sort of one side of, of data sovereignty is that side is the traditional side and the traditional knowledge and and sort of the spiritual elements that, that lee was talking about and and the way of looking at as us as human beings as an extension of the landscape rather than something superior to it and here to benefit from it right um so there's there's that side and then there's the contemporary side there's there's the basics of you know how many you know just basic demographic information man like who are our members where do we all live you know what clan do we come from what are our skills and occupations what do we have to offer like like there's there's very much like a, a contemporary uh gap in in information that we need to fill in the blanks just to again be, uh, begin rebuilding our nation so it indigenous data is data that can benefit indigenous peoples but for a, the longest time has been collected by and exploited by colonial and corporate entities Yeah, I'll just add that the First Nations Information Governance Council is um, has set out what are called the OCAP principles, um, ownership. Uh, what are they, Kevin? You run through the uh, yeah OCAP uh, ownership, control, access, and possession. So I mean that's basically the uh, yeah the the standard for Indigenous nations within Canada at least is is that nations have the right to the ownership, the control, the access, and the possession of of any information um regarding our lands our people our language our history our culture um that's 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 the standard yeah and i think through our research what we discovered is that indigenous people have had an awareness of data sovereignty probably more so than any other subsect of our population you know um and and that's as trevor mentioned because of colonial frameworks impacting their way of life way of being and um, and when it came to data collection, there was this high level recognition of like, you can't just take our data, like, um, you know, you, you, you've taken so much, right? Our land, our children, our, you know, our futures um, in so many ways, huge impact on culture. Um, and there's this heightened awareness around the importance of data. Um, it started, you know, decades ago. I, what that enables is <clears throat> with the with the legal affirmation of indigenous title uh, aboriginal title uh, as it would be expressed in our legal system and rights that we have opportunity to create a jurisdiction that's aligned with indigenous law that honors these values and the values of individuals contributions and 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 individual ownership and control of personal data so the what we recognize notionally 
is we we have an opportunity to create these islands of sovereign data where individuals' rights are upheld for everyone. And you know the 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 corporate entities that manage our data are often referred to as hyperscalers. And they have a monetary model based on buying and selling people's attention. Um, they use location tracking and um, you know predictive analysis with psychological profiling so that they can understand and predict how people will purchase and vote. So our, our data is, is being harvested at, on mass to inform how we engage in the future by shareholders and groups with short-term interest in an economic framework that is fundamentally feudal and colonial. So what we see at Chinook Acts is an opportunity to create these islands of uh, civic integrity where the data is protected and upheld and the individual interests around that data can be controlled by uh, individual owners of data. So it's the, the, you know, one thing that I find remarkable with the, the numerous nations, indigenous nations across Canada is despite the Indian Act, which is essentially genocidal policy and all the impacts that have been legislated and carried out quite brutally, that cultures have endured and survived. And although the, 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 they've been seriously impacted, there's these threads of truth that remain uh, from these cultural processes. Now, Trevor's engaged in this with his clan um, and, and how we revitalize that using data. I think that's, as a tangible example, what you're working on, Trevor, if you can share a bit, would, uh, would kind of articulate what we're working on uh, from a practical perspective. Yeah, so we're <clears throat> very early um, stages of of uh, community engagement, pretty much. Uh, but we're in the early stages of um, of starting to establish uh, data sovereignty for my clan. So, uh, yeah, just to sort of piggyback on what on Lee's talking about here. So, the, if if we look at my nation as an example, so the Wet'suwet'en Nation, we we have. Um, our traditional hereditary governance system of five clans. And uh, within each clan, we have several house groups for 13 house groups in total. Uh, each of those um, ancestral lineages has a hereditary uh, house chief. And uh, those names and, and those rights and titles have, and uh, stewardship responsibilities have been passed on generation to generation. And then uh, Canada came along, and, and we have the Indian Act now, and and that that is imposed the elected um, band council system on us. And there's this been there's been a clash ever since, and and it's a struggle um, to to unify around these conflicting systems ever since. And and that's a very live challenge that continues. We we don't have unity in within our nation, and we and it's hard for us to make collective decisions, particularly around major decisions that impacts all of our clans and all of our communities across the territory right so we really don't have that decision making mechanism in place right now and and i think a good starting point is to begin to build up our traditional 
societies and systems through data sovereignty because on on the clan side of things we don't have baseline data right about who we are and our relations we we have so we have data about us as individuals collected through the Indian Act system as most of us are members of one of our six Indian Act bands uh, but that data has always been collected through that colonial lens by and for uh, the, the, by and for the, the federal government, right? That is basically providing us peanuts on an annual basis to, to keep us alive, but not thriving, right? But if, what we don't know on the, on, at least for the Wet'suwet'en example, we, we, we don't know how many clan members we have. We don't know where all of our clan members live. We don't know, um, how many elders we have, how many youth we have, uh, what our, educational backgrounds and, and skill sets are, uh, we don't know our cultural gifts, our cultural abilities, um, cultural knowledge. We, we don't have all of that uh, mapped out and codified uh, within a way that is accessible, right? Like we have a bunch of uh, boxes in an office somewhere filled with cultural knowledge from our ancestors that, and that's basically what we have. And it's like, how do we take that and make it accessible? and put it into a relational database that that our clan has that unique uh, ownership and, and permissions that we've established and protocols on top of it um, to just begin relating to each other in a way that makes sense and, and it becomes a tool that we can then perhaps bring to the other clans if this pilot project goes well uh, to begin rebuilding that side of our nation to the point where we can we can look at both systems equally and be like, all right, how do we merge here? How do we bring the nation back together? So that's just one example of of my nation and some of our challenges, but it's not an uncommon story, uh, particularly for indigenous nations in in Britain, what's now called British Columbia, where where for the most part there were no treaties signed and it's very much unceded lands, uh, um, this side of the Rockies and and yeah, so it's, it's it's very exciting. It's very groundbreaking stuff. And and a lot of what we're trying to do hasn't been done before, uh, particularly, you can speak to this side, but utilizing what we're doing on these unceded territories to help build up our nations to then create a, a unique data sovereignty jurisdiction that we can then resell to the global market to help make this sustainable, right? So we actually want to put the, the cloud computing uh, infrastructure on indigenous lands to support everything we're talking about nation rebuilding and, and all of that good stuff, but also to make it uh, work from an economic point of view, uh, reselling that additional compute capacity to the broader market to, to make it sustainable, right? So we can keep this work going. Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of my orientation comes around energy policy. Um, I, in 2005, uh, was a Green Party candidate in the provincial election. And I was really, uh, there was two issues that I was passionate about, and that's energy transition, um, implementing renewable energy, and, and, and also Indigenous reconciliation, um, just because of how I grew up, where I grew up, and then I spent a couple of years working in post-apartheid South Africa and really was able to see the parallels between the apartheid policy framework and the Indian Act, which was a precursor to apartheid. And it just made me ask questions about why the status quo existed in Canada. Um, so in British Columbia, we have a extensive hydropower network through BC Hydro uh, as a crown centralized corporation. 
Um, but unceded territory and indigenous title lands raises question about the notion of crown land and crown assets like that. Um, and and in many ways, I would just BC Hydro. Um, is created by the BC Energy Act, um, and then there's new layers and layers of law put upon it in the Clean Energy Act, which has recently been revised. So we have these tremendous assets, and there, I would say, the legacy impacts of BC Hydro on Indigenous communities and nations have been significant. And I believe that those nations <clears throat> have rights and title to those those land assets that to that energy and a data center, um, you know, a server farm, the biggest input cost is energy. So we have an abundance of energy. BC Hydro now describes it as an oversupply of energy because of the downsizing of our forest sector, which was our largest industry for decades. And the, the, so we have a, a bunch of underutilized energy. So notionally, if if we build this sector and enable indigenous communities to have a to participate in partnership with BC Hydro in modernizing our grid, uh, implementing uh, smart grid nodes around these data centers and the uninterrupted battery uh, supplies that are required, the surge protectors for your supercomputers. That gives us the fundamental infrastructure to modernize our grid and accelerate energy transition towards electrification, which are the objectives of our provincial and federal government. Um, but it's it's in terms of implementing policy on the ground, it's always very difficult. And and BC Hydro is really confined by these layers and layers of old legislation. So we've really seen the opportunity. Uh, guided by some of the, the work with Hydro looking at future grid around what they called innovation sandboxes. And, and we're developing indigenous innovation districts where we can bring in these um, high performance compute centers with sovereign data, um, again, for the communities and their data, but also for uh, enterprise corporations that want enhanced uh, assurance of sovereign data that aren't really subject to the Patriot Act and in certain eyes, like health data, as an example, has really tight um, legislative uh, requirements because it's our, our data is you know, vital um, and how it's managed is, 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 is absolutely crucial. So for us to be able to innovate some, um, you know, integrating emerging technologies so that we can have better performing systems with our energy grid that's modernized. And with our data management systems, we kind of have this amazing business, unique business opportunity that is really the opportunity for in these indigenous nations to embrace um, and, and bring what's known through the Indian Act as own source revenue, their own, the, the, their own independent revenue and what has been known, it's, it's often called the Harvard study, but there was this extensive study into self-determination and economic development is, is widely understood to be the driver towards self-determination and self-governance. So creating sustainable economic base through this model of indigenous innovation districts, through sovereign data, 
and um, modernizing the energy grid we see is is the future of of reconciliation for communities or a large part of it from the economic driver driver standpoint and clean energy and energy advancement is a, a stewardship responsibility that i think is best understood through these traditional knowledge frameworks and and trevor you can speak to um, I think more accurately with all the consultation with communities you've done um, to how that fits with Indigenous values. Yeah, probably. I probably could. <laughs> is this, uh, you know, are there similar projects you're aware of going on in other parts of the world or is this quite unique? There's, there's, um, you know, I know there's a group that's focusing on uh, Bitcoin mines, on distressed forestry assets. Um, you know, they're looking at at this oversupply of energy and you know market opportunity. There are definitely some innovators uh, working on some software solutions for sovereign data, and um, there's a, a number of providers that are providing like open source software uh, and and hardware stacks that that honor sovereign data principles um but not really from a policy lobbying perspective which is really our focus is creating a, a framework where this can take place and, and again we there's there's considerable interest from different levels of government, different agencies, and, and you know, providers who who are looking for these solutions. Um, so, to my knowledge, there's there's things that are close, but not not something that is has our nuanced focus. Um, yeah, so we we seem to be fairly unique. We're certainly weird. <laughs> <laughs> I think, well, weird that's, uh, I think traditionally a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor, you were talking about the sort of two competing layers or styles of Indigenous self-government, the older one and the one that was sort of uh, imposed later on. Is there some reason to think that the older one is significantly better at self-organization and collective intelligence, or should we be looking to some new emergence system that maybe reconciles the two that are struggling with each other? That's a excellent question, uh, and I, I think it depends. I, I think every Indigenous nation uh, is just that, right? A nation, and, and they are on their own journey of coming out of or uh, coming out from underneath the colonial project known as Canada, right? And and how that is looking in real time as it is happening right now as we speak uh, is different for every nation. So some you have incredibly strong, resilient, traditional hereditary governance systems that were damaged and broken, but never quite broke completely, right? And now they've they've rebuilt quite quite beautifully, and and uh, we're in we're in some some talks with with some nations that that have that hereditary governance system front and center, and that is who, as an outsider coming into that nation, that is who you are um, who you are engaging with. 
And then you have nations that that for whatever reason just didn't didn't quite have that or were hit harder by the the blunt force of of colonialism and so their system just a lot of that knowledge is is more um watered down i guess throughout the generations unfortunately and so and so because of that um you you have the the imposed upon colonial system that has sort of taken root but with uh, the, the values of that community, right? So even though it, it is a, you know, sort of foreign imposed system, it can still be utilized for the betterment of the people. It, you know, it, it just really depends. And, and then you have hybrids. So you have, you have hybrid models um, that, that are emerging that take the, you know, the best of both worlds. So, so really it's, it's, there's, there's no way to say that one is better than the other because it's all very much placed on context of of where each nation is in their own sort of uh, decolonial and indigenizing journey. And so I think going at it from the lens of data sovereignty is 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 a way of sort of helping that nation answer that question over time uh, because you're you're rediscovering so much about yourself and your own people in that in that journey. So, uh, I think for a lot of people, there's ambiguity around words like colonial and decolonization, right? I mean, uh, it's corporate or it's federal or it's a type of structure or it's a type of an attitude. How do you guys think about those words? Like in, in general, what do you think colonial means and what do you think decolonization means? You want me to take a crack? Well, you know, colonial, I, <clears throat> the, the, the crown, the the you know we are part of this Commonwealth, which was the, you know the English colonial framework. Um, our legal system, as um, you know, and, and our parliamentary governance system were largely informed by the Westminster system coming out of Britain. Yet. Um, John Ralston Saul wrote elegantly about this in his book, A Fair Country, where he says Canada is fundamentally a Métis nation um, and that Indigenous governance had a huge impact on the Westminster system. So uh, colonial, I, I'd say, is this thing of notion of Canada, um, you know, which, which started off by uh, as a as a entrepreneurial entrepreneurial venture by the Hudson's Bay Company, you know, largely beaver pelts to make top hats for Europe, you know. So as a nation state, we seem to be founded on a fashion craze in Europe. Uh, and and the what I appreciate about the math, the diverse Indigenous perspectives is that there's an understanding of this continent turtle island without the colonial framework with without that eurocentric impact and so decolonizing i think is in many respects seeing beyond the short history of colonization um recognizing that groups of people um you know lived on this continent for epochs prior to the, the European experiment um, that we call Canada. Um, now that said, we're not 
turning back time, um, we, 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 we have to manage our romantic nostalgia um, and, and see how we can collaborate. And I, and, and I believe these protocols of how we convene and how we show up, I, I, my takeaways from these traditional governance is that there was a, a deep participatory democracy embedded in traditional governance. And that is how you steward and, um, you know, your land and resources. And that is how you, you know, collaborate or even, you know, deal with conflict with neighboring communities. Uh, so somebody took me aside once when I was speaking at a conference and, and I was speaking about the, this notion of indigenous data sovereignty um, for everyone and decolonizing data. I think what I, and, and, and this person said, you know, you, you're, it sounds like you're referencing what's known as the great law of peace. And at the time that Europe was colonizing the world on Turtle Island, the nations were drafting the great law of peace, which was a way of living in uh, sustainable coexistence with one another um, and respecting the diversity of different nations, clans, and, and, and people's views. So that, that respect of diversity, I think, is the strength of the distributed governance of these traditional systems. Because I think when we look at evolving systems, and when we looked at the theory behind collective intelligence, the diversity of views is the strength of the collective. And if we fall into groupthink scenarios, it's usually because we're deferring to a homogenous perspective. So the diversity of plan governance is the strength of these traditional systems that I think can inform how we operate moving forward. I just really dug into colonial and use decolonization. Uh, Trevor, anything to add on that? No, what Lee said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do like the notion of indigenization. So from my lived experience, when I, growing up on the Saanich Peninsula, next to, you know, Sartlip, Pakachin, Sakum reserves, um, I had a lot of exposure to Indigenous ways of being, um, just informally through friends. And the as someone who, who didn't come from a family that had faith, there, those teachings were, they resonated and they gave me sort of a framework. So uh, I believe that my thinking was indigenized by those teachings. And I do believe that they are probably the best parts of me as a, a way of contextualizing how I interact and live in the world. So I, I, I believe that the the indigenous teachings and ways of seeing the world are fundamentally healthy for all of us yeah that's something i think about a lot is sort of uh what are the skills and practices that allow us to become indigenous more quickly right because some people are in a continuity culturally and 
ethnically, whereby they receive a lot of the results of long periods of time uh, through which people became indigenous to places. But it looks like we're going forward into a world where there's going to be a great deal of ecological instability, a great deal of climate change, a great deal of migration, right? There's going to be um, the need for people to become indigenous to new places because so many individuals and communities and ways of life will be constantly displaced in the world that's coming. So how do we how do we build up the capacity to become indigenous more quickly when we're not going to have necessarily many generations of adaptation in which to do that? Any thoughts? <laughs> well, I, I, I feel like the land is something that connects our connection to the land is, 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 somewhat synonymous or related to an experience of, of our own indigeneity. You know, if, if we think back, all cultures, like, you know, my, my ancestors from Northern, Northern Europe, um, you know, widely displaced now are, we're, we're tribal, we're indigenous to a land and to a place and, and to different worldviews and, and, there, you know, the, the 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 notion of empire continued to expand and has, and 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 we now associate it with sort of colonialism and and modernity brought, you know, so, so much homogeny. I think like this is how we do things, you know, strip malls and consumerism and you know hyperscalers that manage your data. They give you stuff for free. You are the product, but they give you stuff for free, man. Like, think about it. You get your Gmail, you don't have to pay for it. Um, they're just harvesting your personal information and using it to persuade you on how to live. And I don't, you know, I don't want to demonize them, but that's our imperial experiment gone wild. And uh, I'd say unsettling our civic framework and fabric and the fundamental governance and relationship we have with place. Um, so I, I feel like the land is something that ignites it in us. I think that's why in British Columbia, we have a kind of a unique environment. I think in Canada, like the, the landscape is, we, we have a lot of it uh, relative to the number of people. Um, and the landscape is 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 massive and robust and, and um, awe-inspiring. And I, and I feel like that, the humility that that brings um, sort of brings us into that experience. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I don't identify as indigenous, but I recognize there's an element of me that holds indigeneity. Um, and and you know, I've, I live a, a life of, of white privilege and have lived a life of white privilege. And, and I acknowledge that um, it's, it's, it's real. Um, I saw it right through my 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 school environment, and 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 today still see it. Yeah, I think um, just from my own personal experience with with that, um, you know, being like so, I've you know, I think decolonization starts individually, like decolonizing our own mi minds, right? Decolonizing our own minds, our own hearts our own world views uh and that's a journey everyone everyone is on whether they know it or not <laughs> but 
but so you know for me on 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 that journey like i've so i i am indigenous to these lands uh and i didn't always really know what that meant i didn't even always know that i was wisotan sort of learned learned that uh uh depth of of who i was um in my teenage years and early adulthood uh and then uh, as an adult sort of um for a long time struggling to reconcile the fact that i'm sort of I, i'm indigenous i'm also chinese and i'm also have european ancestry right so so i'm i'm indigenous an immigrant and a colonizer settler all to the same land <laughs> and, and so that's you know that's that's a, a good example of of canada right there is like we have these uh these seemingly irreconcilable elements of ourselves that need to be reconciled uh both individually at the at, at the at the individual person level but but then at the community level and at the nation level like you know, we were talking about what Canada is in terms of colonization and, and really just being a, a colonial experiment uh, built on commerce. Right. And and this um, really this this fetish for going as far and wide and dominating as far as wide and as far as wide as you can. Um, and then we have these these ancient traditional systems that are very damaged, but very much still here and very much still alive. And it's and it's, you know, trying to reconcile those two seemingly irreconcilable things. But it's it's so it's holding these these conflicting notions in your head uh, at the same time and just kind of being OK with the fact that maybe those pieces don't really fit and just kind of being OK with that regardless. I think consensus is messy as much as we might think that it that we might have a Pollyanna perspective that when I've witnessed like reaching consensus, it's a tussle. And and, and I think that's actually a living truth that we're we're becoming and and you know, I I, I believe that consciousness is what wants to evolve. And and that that's how we carry it out is is not holding on to sort of static notions of of what we believe to be true yesterday, but allowing a more nuanced and sophisticated sort of sense of truth, a more whole sense of truth. Um, you know, from the interval perspective, one of the tenets that really serves me is, you know, there's these massive um, different ways of inquiry, and some seem conflicting, and but all hold a degree of truth. But all that the, all those truths are partial, and that it's the the you know the mosaic where you can find a more whole truth. So I think we're as as we open ourselves to the, the diverse ideas of of these messy collectives, then we're allowing the consciousness to evolve through us. Um, and for me, what particular participating in ceremony in particular uh, enabled me to experience that and experience that, that you know how uh, and, and what I came to understand is when we that we all are like tuning forks for truth um, and that you know usually are like you, you can feel energetically when when there's a, a deep resonant truth I don't know if you guys have that experience um yeah, I, I really appreciate you. that because there, it seems like there was a 
an overemphasis in the 20th century on uh, participating in the evolution of consciousness in a purely individual interior fashion. And I'm seeing a lot of people start to rebalance that with a move toward more shared, more collective, more ceremonial practices that are necessary to uh, help us all participate in that same process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that in some ways there's a process through ceremony, through ritual, where we surrender ourselves to that collective gestalt. Um, and, And we're a part of it and a crucial part of it but we're not all of it. And that's a beautiful experience to be part of something. Um, and, I, and, I, and again, I think that that is something that is understood and preserved in these pockets of traditional governance that, that are still being held on to, the, the knowledge keepers. Uh, Trevor, have you witnessed and experienced that? Sure did. Yeah. Um, i'm i have a curiosity around what sort of indigenous languaging is used for information and data are there in general pre-existing words that fit this very well or are words being modified in their meaning or new words invented how are these terms spoken in these languages yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. Um I don't really have an answer for that, but I, but I do know that it's like I think that indigenous people are the <laughs> earliest advocates in in Canada at least for data sovereignty. It just hasn't always been called data sovereignty or 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 looked at as data sovereignty. Uh so I don't think that there is in Wet'suwet'en anyways I don't think that there is a word for uh data or data sovereignty you know but I think it's um more just like our our knowledge and our and our wisdom of of knowing who we are you know there's concepts for that for sure and then it's sort of tied through the generations too you know I think of the concept in Wet'suwet'en at least of of the spirit of the land right and how that is this living, breathing thing that connects all Wet'suwet'en people, past, present, and future, all at once, being here with you through your experience of, of place. So I I, I think uh, new, you know, because these are new technologies for new challenges, I, I think there needs to be a, a continuous evolution of culture for sure, but, but grounded in those in those principles that that are timeless how sovereign can data really be in the information environment like assuming you've got you know really robust legal acknowledgement and protections aren't there so many different kinds of information predators that anybody who wants it can still just take it well you you need to protect your data architecture from what are often referred to as as uh, bad actors um you know and and so you yeah you you have to maintain it in a way that provides like a transparent look into that data architecture um where the sovereignty is is is, is who ha- who can access that transparent view is the big question. Um, 
so we're working on uh, legal frameworks that would honor and respect individuals privacy and control and uh, ownership and the permissions for people to access the data um, but we we have to protect people's data from bad actors as well um you know i, I think that a lot of folks are concerned about the Patriot Act and the NSA scouring personal information. And, and I, I think that there are some considerable, um, you know, there's a lot of merit to that, to, you know, deep state looking in. Um, and I think that the corporate model for data management that is deployed by the hyperscalers is just a, it, we're looking and and the way that data is <clears throat> housed, held, and managed is done by private entities and that are incorporated. And but uh, I I see that data and the way it flows between these uh, processing nodes as civic infrastructure. And the so from a legal and regulatory framework, we're looking at how do we how do we maintain the integrity of civic infrastructure without a colonial bias that is based on uh, public sorry private ownership uh, or, or public ownership, um, public corporations owning and being incentivized to monetize those data sets, um, and it's. I think it's a byproduct of some of our selfish self-interest assumptions of, you know, um, neoclassical economics. So I think a lot of the solutions will be within some of the traditional knowledge and the protocols for ethical interaction uh, that, that are preserved. Um, we don't have whole answers to that. Um, we, we have a research process and we have a framework to work within them, um, a way of truth telling that's defined by elders um, and knowledge keepers. So I've, uh, as somebody who has some coding experience and background and is interested in algorithm development in particular, the, the fundamental bias of Eurocentric thought towards data architecture is, is what we're trying to avoid. But all I can ask for is agnostic frameworks that will honor a specific user group's uh, protocols and make sure that we have interoperable ways so different clans can communicate and operate and function, even though they have slightly nuanced protocols. So there's, I'd say, the perennial characteristics that we're identifying, um, and we're doing so through re research um, and th through learning systems, machine learning of uh, these systems, but they're trained by knowledge keepers. So. Where does the name Chinook X come from? Does it just sound cool, or did you choose it for a special reason? Yeah. I'll leave that to you, Trevor. Yeah. I think it sounds uh, uh, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the The name um, Chinook X. Well, if we, it, it comes from the uh, the um, 
Chinook jargon or Chinook Wawa, which was the uh, a, a sort of mishmash of, of several indigenous languages from throughout the what is now the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and it was it was developed to help facilitate trade and commerce between sovereign and indigenous nations, right? Um, that were working together um, for the betterment of all. It was it was kind of like the original uh, DAO, uh, the original decentralized autonomous organizations, right? And so that was uh, you know really the Chinook ecosystem. And it was built on you know traditional goods like salmon. So that's why you know our 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 logo um, is is a salmon because it's it's there's a spiritual. Um, but also very real economic relationship that uh, our people have had salmon since pre-contact times that continues continues to this day. So it, it's it's a it's a nod to that, and it's also with the X. <laughs> it's also crossing it with 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 modern and emerging technologies to try and bring those two worlds together. Plus, it just sounds badass. So. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think part of the axe was a was a sort of a shout out to SpaceX and the whole notion of uh, terraforming Mars. And you know, my my sentiment is, well, why don't we put a steady effort into preserving this planet? You know, let's let's see if we can make this livable. Um, and uh, so, uh, I think that's sort of part of the X. That, that functioned in, but yeah, I don't know. It, the, of the Chinook jargon, skookum is probably the, the, the best preserved word um, that still makes it into modern vernacular. I don't know if you're familiar with that or. I, it's one of my favorite words. It's got, it gives you a real visceral resonance, skookum. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, and, and, and in part, what what we recognized you know within our team um you know of, of mixed ancestry and heritage is that the 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 trade language that that all nations traded and that there there was extensive trade um pre-contact and you know the greece trails were known and ulican greece was was what they're named after which uh, and I think this is beautiful that the Ulican was essentially like the, the the equivalent of the gold standard, if you will. Um, but Ulican, its great value was it was portable and but incredibly nutritious. Um, you, you you could preserve it, hold it, sustain it for a long time, and it would help people deal with scarcity and famine. Like it would, so that 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 was its fundamental value for the trade routes. And and when early traders came, there there were harmonious relationships between settlers and the indigenous inhabitants and extensive trade. And I think that is looking forward, what we can aspire to create in Canada is in, in this experiment called Canada, which I think is we're still early in. Um, and I think embracing the indigenous way of being on this land and stewarding it is is what we need to do more effectively in in all our systems in our technologies in our infrastructure um, and and that will lead to a more sustainable and just equitable place for everyone 
That's my romantic notion of it. <laughs> not bad. It's not bad. I like it. This is uh, this is obviously the year that uh, chatbots and large language models have been exploding. Um, does AI mean anything to the project you're working on? Does it change anything? Is there a role for it going forward as it gains capacity? Yeah, one our, our you know it's here. Um, I think that what my eyes are on is the is ethics in AI and how do we um, sort of gauge and have these living truthing systems within it. I think it's going to become much more necessary. Um, and um, you know, and, and I also think with indigenous innovation districts and this providing civic infrastructure for information integrity um, is, is going to be more much more vital at, at this time. So I, I think it comes down to these living truthing systems that, that we aspire to model and create. You know, I, I, I do feel that through the research we're doing, that they are that we can have like we can introduce quantum computing through relational databases that are informed by indigenous knowledge systems. Uh, that's that's a hypothesis, an aspiration. Um, but I I see it as possible. Um, you know, there's a bunch of engineering to happen in between, you know, that that notion and making it a reality, but it is something that we're actively talking on and working on with partners. Who do you guys look to as um, good thought resources in this area? Thought resources? Yeah, like who's who, who do you listen to? Who do you read? Um Who's thinking informs the kind of project that you guys are working on? Well, I think, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit earlier in the hour about, uh, you know, sort of who's been in this space and uh, we didn't really name any names, but we sort of spoke on, you know, there's, there's people doing like sort of software solutions for indigenous data sovereignty. You know, I, I um, sort of, uh, before Chinook X sort of got off the ground, I was doing some uh, quite a bit of work with Anamiki Indigenous Technology, uh, based in in Victoria, uh, and they're uh, deep in the process of developing uh, an Indigenous data um, sovereignty software solution. Um, and so uh, I co-authored a, a digital ebook uh, with them called uh, Databack hashtag Databack. Uh, asserting and supporting indigenous data sovereignty, um, and and I work closely with uh, um, Anamiki uh, CEO Jeff Ward, uh, who's Ojibwe, as well as um, uh, Jeff Doctor, who is uh, uh, their impact strategist. He's a um, techno sociologist or something really fancy like that. Anyways, he's he's a really smart dude, and and so he and he's worked in 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 his nation and. Um, and, and applies very much that that uh, indigenous impact lens to uh, to development. And so I, I learned a lot working with those two in particular. Um, but there's there's um, there's Gwen Phillips, who is sort of uh, uh, I don't know the, the grandmother of the indigenous data sovereignty movement, at least in BC. 
um and there's there's so many trailblazers uh you know i i, I don't want to just start giving a list of names but those were who immediately jumped to mind for me i referenced carol ann hilton and the indigenomics institute um that's uh, a wonderful framework um i uh, ruben george is a, is a big influence um he's from salawa tooth coast salish and uh uh, he is uh, an advisor um, and and working on energy solutions. Um, so, um, for me, conceptually, um, you know, from a physics perspective, I consider myself a Bohmian. David Bohm's work, and um, there's a, a professor Leroy Littlebear. I believe he's at the University of Lethbridge, and he participated in dialogues with with bone and and wrote about how the bones quantum interpretation was fundamentally the blackfoot worldview so the bridging of indigenous cosmologies and quantum theory has always been really inspiring to me um you know from a super geek perspective um and and i see how that thought is you know fundamentally different like a, a epistemologically ontologically different world truthing world relationship systems so that's essentially where we're sort of listening um to people who are knowledge keepers um and i think that's uh, as a company, we um, will ask this guiding question, is this the creator's path? And it's a strange way to do business, but um, it seems to be working for us. Um, you know, we're, we're asking what, what it, you know, what wants to emerge here? What wants to come out? Where does, where does consciousness want us to take this? And who do we need at the table to, you know, to bring their gifts and their insights to make this a reality? Um, so our our approach as a as a small entity that works in partnership with multiple stakeholders on projects that are much bigger than than us, um, it's really everyone who comes to the table that we listen to, um, kind of in that living system. Um, you know, uh, I, I would shout out to Dr. Vicky Lemieux from blockchain at UBC in the School of Information Technology and Management for a lot of technological leadership and, and passion around uh, traditional perspectives in technology, the Human Data uh, Commons Foundation and the Partech Conference. Um, and that community really helps inform. Um, and I do want to um, reference a, a close friend, Gord Petrick of Nietzsche management based in Ottawa, who was um, an indigenous thought leader. Um, and then we spent a lot of time ruminating on, on um, indigenous blockchain systems. Um, and th there's some exciting things coming down the pipe. Uh, there's amazing thought leaders in this space. Um, you know, for me, one thing that continues to blow my mind is the deep intelligence of and capacity of emerging indigenous leaders like trevor um, you know just the and, and i believe it's when you can think outside of the 
um, you know, orthodoxy of, of our cultural milieu, that that's where you can access these transpersonal, like transformational ideas. So, um, yeah. Terrific. And it's, uh, yeah, I agree. This is tremendously exciting stuff. These are uh, really rich conversations that open up new pathways going forward. And they're conversations like I didn't hear anybody having just a few years ago. So I'm fascinated by what's emerging here. And I think we're probably coming just about to the end of our discussion, but is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have? Is there anything uh, lingering around we still want to surface here before we finish? Yeah, I don't, I'm not, not at all. That. Silence speaks volumes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> There's consensus. Fantastic. Then I, <laughs> my only other questions involve the book wrapped in awe, but I'm not going to ask them. I'm going to thank you guys both and wrap this up. This has been a really, uh, really nourishing conversation. Thanks very much, guys. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thanks so much for uh, for reaching out to us. Yeah, no, I appreciate what you do. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's been a, a real joy to participate.